0: Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So this is the second Sunday of Easter. We're eight days in. Did you know that? Did you, I mean, so we prepare 40 days for Easter. Don't just celebrate it one day. It's a 50 day long celebration. One of my favorite theologians says in Easter for all 50 days, you should have a mimosa for breakfast every day. (laughs) I hope that you and your family are finding ways to celebrate Easter. I mean, you you should do your favorite things. You should eat your favorite food. in, In our family, let's see, this week we've gone to the movies. Um, Some of us have gone mountain biking. Uh, Silas, we did paint your own pottery. Uh, We've we've found out from everybody their favorite food that that at some point in Easter, we're going to prepare. For me, of course, it's shrimp creole. That's what I'm going for Easter. Janelle's going for steak. Silas is going for fruit salad. Um, Spencer went for chicken nuggets. (laughs) Friday night, pizza and movie night. Scrap the pizza this Friday night. We had like 60 chicken nuggets. It's a family of seven, right? You, you should do in Easter the things you love. We're, we're starting our garden. That's what this is about. So think about Lent. You take away things you love as a way of focusing. Easter, you add. You add the stuff that brings you joy and delight, unless it's stuff that shouldn't bring you joy and delight, right? right? This is not licensed for that. This is Easter. What no, Why? why? Why is Easter a party? Well, here's the primary point. The first and most important thing to know about Easter is this. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of a new world. A world that God always intended to make. In other words, the one and only true God, the creator of this world. He loves this world. He loves it so much that he took flesh onto himself. Look, he loves this world more than Kim and Indy love Rowan. Rowan or Rohan? More than they love. And if Rohan is sick, they're going to stay up all night. They're going to do everything in their power to help him get better. Our God, the one true creator God, loves this world, every square inch of it, more than any of you have ever even imagined that you love your child. So what length would he not go to? And he asks. That's why we celebrate for 50 days. That's why we eat our favorite foods and do our favorite things. That's why last Sunday was the beginning of a feast, a party. Because this one true God who made this world, he took on flesh and he took into himself all of the corruption, all of the decay. Wouldn't you? If your child had cancer and you had the ability to draw that cancer into yourself without a moment's thought, wouldn't you? And that's what God did. On the cross, like a salve on the pussing wound of the world, he sucked into himself, he drew into himself all of the evil, all of the, decru- of the corruption, all of the, the decay, the violence, and the suffering, and the agony, and the sorrow. He drew them all into himself, and he even drew death into himself. And then, and then, he beat it. He rose from the dead. At the crucifixion, he draws it into himself, the weight of evil, all of it. And in the resurrection, he defeated it. He rose from the dead. And somehow by doing this, and this is a calculus that I don't understand. Somehow by doing that, he broke away through death, through evil, through sorrow, through agony, through suffering. He plowed away right through it so that the whole world... Can follow him through suffering, through death, into life after death, life after suffering, into a renewed world. When Jesus was raised from the dead, something happened in the fabric of the universe. Somehow, death and evil. And sorrow and agony and suffering. And every twisted and defaced and broken aspect of reality. Somehow all of it was defeated. And God's creative and gracious and merciful power. Like a reverse nuclear bomb. This life-giving power came up out of the ground in Jesus' body. And new creation started. With that one flowering in his body. I got an email from someone this past week who said. I continue to feel like the two guys on the road to Emmaus. This is what we read this morning. How is it possible? This makes no sense. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's really hard to believe. And not just for us with our sophisticated liberation from medieval superstition, with our scientific deliverance from myths and miracles. We don't live in the dark ages. We live in the enlightenment. This stuff can't be. We're not the only ones who find this astonishing claim hard to believe. In fact, Luke, in his account of these events, notice how he highlights... That it was not only it's not only difficult for us, it was difficult for the eyewitnesses. Notice how Luke, the author of this particular biography of Jesus, notice how he presents the events of Jesus' resurrection as a surprise. Look at Luke twenty-four, look at verse one. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Why were they taking spices? Because they were going to anoint a dead body so that the stink of it didn't ruin life for everybody in the vicinity. They weren't looking for a raised Jesus. They found the stone rolled away, but when they went in, they didn't find the body. Even though the stone was moved, that was odd. They still had no clue that this body was going to be raised up. And as they were frightened, oh, and while they were perplexed, this doesn't make sense. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? And the obvious answer is, well, we're not seeking the living. We're seeking the dead. The women were shocked. Notice verse 9. Notice how the rest of Jesus's followers responded when these women returned and they said, hey, he's risen from the dead. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women. When they said these words to them, the rest of the disciples, it seemed to them an idle tell and they did not believe it. And then Peter, verse 12 He rose and he ran to the tomb. He stopped. He looked in. He saw the grave clothes. The linen cloths by themselves. And he went home believing. Is that what it says? No. Marveling. The women, the 11, Peter. And then in our passage this morning, two of the followers of Jesus who were a part of all that. They're leaving Jerusalem. This following community of Jesus is now fracturing. It's disintegrating. Not only do they not believe it. They can't hold together. And they're walking home. Here they are. Leaving. This, it's about a seven mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is probably Cleopas and his wife Mary. They're sad. They're confused. They're scared. has just slaughtered Jesus. Because he was leading a movement that was... Politically charged. It was a threat to the public peace. You don't mess with Pax Romana. Or you discover. There's such a thing. As peace in your life. By eliminating you. And once a troublesome movement was identified. The order of the day for Rome. Was not only to slaughter the leader. But as many of the followers as you could identify. So can you see them in your imagination? They're leaving Jerusalem and then Jesus joins them. But they don't know it's Jesus. And he asked them, what's going on? And notice the end of verse 17, Luke chapter 24, verse 17. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? (laughs) The irony is, he's actually the only one that does know. Can you imagine Cleophas later when it dawns on him what he said? Holy cow, I can't believe I said that. Look at verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice, Jesus being crucified canceled their dreams and made them think their hope was misplaced. This is what we heard in the passage that Gabby read to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23. Paul said, "But we preach a Christ most of your bibles don't have the indefinite article there, a. It's supposed to be there. A Christ crucified. Because this is a stumbling block to Jews. The word Christ, anytime you see it in the New Testament, it's not the last name of Jesus. It's the title of Jesus. Christ means Messiah. It's the word that gets used all through the Old Testament for this figure, this mysterious figure that God was going to send to rescue Israel from her enemies and to heal the whole world. And a Christ that has been crucified, Paul says, is a stumbling block to Jews. That's exactly what Cleopas is saying here. We had hoped he would redeem Israel, but he was crucified. It's not just that crucifixion ended it. It's that crucifixion has no place in the Jewish plausibility structure for a Messiah. That's like saying blue is square. It's it's illogical. Christ crucified is illogical to the Jewish plausibility structure. Nothing in their memory bank. Nothing in their logic allowed that to make sense. Crucifixion in no way was a part of the narrative arc of God healing the world. And not just crucifixion. Look at Verse The middle of verse 21. Yes. And besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So the crucifixion destroyed their hopes and the resurrection befuddled them. Back in verse 11, when when they first heard the women saying that Jesus was raised from the dead, this couple, along with all the other followers, they dismissed the idea as the delirious babbling of a crazy person. Now in verse 22, they're not quite so negative. But they're still perplexed. See, they had... Not only do they have no category for the crucifixion as fitting into God's plan to heal the world. That's not how the world gets fixed. But also. They had no category for the resurrection. The crucifixion is not how the world gets fixed. And the resurrection is just to be blunt, not how the world works. I mean, how many resurrected people have you ever met? And you've been around less dead people than they were because we live in a culture that's anesthetized death. I mean, how many of you have actually smelled a dead body? Probably no one in this room. I mean, so they, despite their scientific ignorance, they probably knew about life and death in a far deeper existential way than you and I did. Dead people don't get up, they stink. They decay. Did you know that? You don't know it like they knew it. You weren't around it. How many times have you said, we got to get to the graveyard quick, because if we don't put some ointments on this thing, it's going to ruin the entire community's experience. They knew. that. See, look, look, the crucifixion did not fit their pattern, and the resurrection did not fit their pattern. Dead people stay dead. Easter was Hard for them to believe. It was difficult to understand. Just like my friend emailing me this past week, and just like so many of us, how is this even possible? And I think we face a challenge that they didn't face. Not only is our scientific and deistic worldview doubtful of miracles, but also the last two hundred years have been a wash in a radical suspicion of the gospel books as reliable historical witnesses. So not only do we sit here listening to these stories, um, really not that chuffed by crucifixion. Yeah, okay, so we got killed. That's not hard for us. Um, not only do we sit there kind of ignoring that, really struggling with resurrection. I mean, come on. Really? Like, how does that even work? You know, my kids ask questions. Janelle, we're always, all through the year, somebody in our family is going to be saying something like, so once he rose, does he grow old after that? I mean, how does that work? Uh, He can walk through walls, but he's physical. He can just show up and they don't recognize him, but then they do. I mean, come on, really? In addition to that, there's this other issue. Can we trust these documents? In other words, none of us have seen the resurrected Jesus. So there's this one-time miraculous event 2,000 years ago that challenges our view of the world. And furthermore, when it comes to the Bible and in particular the Gospels, the books that tell the story of Jesus' life, it is hard for us to really believe that they're accurate. Here's the way the story has been told for the last couple hundred years in the West. And whether you've ever heard it named, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's like um, walking pneumonia, it's like background radiation. It's all through our society. Here's the story After Jesus' death, his followers told stories. About their experiences with him. And these stories got passed down through the early Christian community. And finally, long after the events of Jesus' life actually happened, they're written down. And the end of that oral evolution, when it finally gets inscripted, when it finally gets written, that's the gospels that we're reading. So the Gospels give us a Jesus, as the story goes, that's been filtered through the perspectives and the agenda of the early Christian community. We can't really know if Jesus was raised from the dead. We don't have any real hard evidence. All we have are the writings of those with a vested interest. So when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, according to this view, the story of his resurrection was a myth that evolved by those who had a vested interest in protecting the status quo of their religion. For the next few minutes, I want to take that common accusation that common narrative, that common explanation, I want to take it seriously and engage with it. And I want to reason with you by pointing out three pieces of evidence. Not proof. None of these by themselves are ironclad proof. That doesn't exist. But three pieces of evidence that the account of Jesus' resurrection here in Luke 24 is reliable eyewitness testimony. That what we're actually reading here is not the uh, accumulation of an oral tradition, but it is the reliable record of eyewitness testimony. Three pieces of evidence that we're reading an eyewitness account. First, there are women involved. Now, all of us who live on this side of feminism should be shocked by that statement. But feminism was necessary, continues to be necessary, because cultures have often tyrannized women. You see, the sad historical fact is that the women Is that women, at the time this was written, in the culture this was written in, were not regarded as credible witnesses to events. This is a a fact of the historical record. Remember how the followers of Jesus, both men and women, responded to the women who said he rose from the dead? Do you remember what the response was? This is just an idle tale. Like I've been saying, this is a Greek word used by physicians to describe the delirious babblings of someone who's very ill. This is how women talk when they get scared. That's what that means. That's what their culture's plausibility structure, it's what it set them up to do with this report. The followers of Jesus, both men and women, dismissed the account of the empty tomb and a conversation with angels. Why? Partly because the ones doing the reporting are women in a world biased against women. And here's why this is significant as a piece of evidence. It's because this document and the other gospels they're written, we're not exactly sure when they're written, but we're fairly confident they're written somewhere between 20 and 60 years after Jesus' life. That's the most conservative estimates. Some people even put them much later, 100 years after. They're wrong. But, but regardless, regardless of where you put it, nobody inventing, a difficult to believe story that is going to require every ounce of credibility I can get to convince you to believe this. Nobody who invent, who is inventing a myth or polishing a myth or sanitizing an account, nobody is going to make the key eyewitness women. That's a piece of evidence. It's not conclusive. It's not proof. But if you're trying to be an honest historical analysis analyst, that is a piece of the evidence. If the stories were invented in that culture, they would have certainly invented fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses as the first to find the empty tomb, or at the very least, they would have muted the presence of the women. And furthermore, in three of the gospel accounts, not a single male ever goes to the empty tomb i'm sorry not a single male witnesses the burial this this is not at all how a myth would look so this whole 200 year hermeneutic of suspicion toward the Gospels that this is accumulated over time and it grows to support the, the vested interests of people who just want to have power, there is no way in the world that's how this would have functioned. Number two, the second piece of evidence that Luke 24 is not a polished story, uh, uh, an evolved myth, but is the raw data. The raw transcript of the eyewitnesses, unprocessed, unfiltered. The second piece of evidence is this. Those of you who have been with us for the last few months as we've been going through Luke's gospel. There's hardly a line, hardly a sentence, hardly a story, hardly an event that, that Luke records where the where he does not quote or allude to the old testament if you've spent the last couple of months with us you know that time and time again we're showing we we've shown how when luke is telling the story of the life of jesus he's constantly quoting or alluding or echoing the old testament why because he's very intent on helping you to see that Jesus' life and teachings are, are a continuation of a story that's already been going on. So there's virtually not a moment in Luke's gospel that goes by without an echo, an illusion, a quote of the Old Testament until the resurrection And in the resurrection story, there is not a single allusion or quote or of the Old Testament. There's no quoting of it. Now, this is remarkable in and of itself. I mean, if you're reading and it's this thick, intertextual, organic description of Jesus, and then suddenly you get to resurrection. and, And there it is. There's none of that. It's like you change genre. It's like you stepped out of this highly processed, highly agenda driven, highly theological, highly interpreted telling of the life of Jesus. And it's like you stepped suddenly into this transcript. Now, this is remarkable in and of itself, but it gets even more remarkable when you, when you consider the fact that within 25 years. Of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Whenever people talk about the resurrection, they always do it connected to the Old Testament. Now stay with me. The Gospels were written 20 to 60 years after the events. They're deeply interpreted, deeply shaped With the agenda of saying, look, the whole life of Jesus, his birth, everything, it it fits with what the Old Testament has been saying. And then you get to the, the most important part of it all is resurrection, and there's none of that anymore. It's like this crash. And then when you look at other stories, other preaching, other theologizing, other writing of the resurrection... Not the gospel accounts, but all the rest of the New Testament, anytime they talk about resurrection, they do exactly what I'm saying the, resurre- the gospels don't do. They root it in the Old Testament. They refer to the Old Testament. They say things like, according to scripture. So the attentive reader, whether it's a skeptic, a historian, a literary analysis, analyst, or a person of faith, the attentive reader at this point asks, why? Why the con- sudden and conspicuous Absence of references to the Old Testament in in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, and and following. And the most probable explanation is that we are reading the accounts of eyewitnesses that were filled with sadness and doubt and fear and despair, and they were perplexed, and they had no plausibility structure for this, they had no connection of this to the Old Testament. This is not polished. This is not fabricated. This is the raw account of puzzled eyewitnesses. I didn't understand it at the time, and I'm not sure I do now, but this is more or less what happened. Number three. Again, that's not proof. But if you're you're trying to be honest and rigorous and rational and historical, you have to deal with that. You have to take seriously the historical data. Number three, a third piece of evidence that Luke 24 is actual eyewitness testimony to the events themselves and not something made up later in the first century. To get this, I want you to listen to a passage read from somewhere else in the Bible. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. This is just one example of how the entire New Testament treats the resurrection except for the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Other than the Gospels, whenever the New Testament talks about the resurrection, two things always happen. They always root it in the Old Testament, in the story. And number two, they always point it toward our resurrection in the future as a result of Jesus's resurrection. Whenever you find the resurrection of Jesus, it is always rooted in the backstory and connected with the hope that those who belong to Jesus will be raised from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. Anytime the church gives us a record of how they talked about it after having thought about it for decades, that's what they do with it. Except when the gospels. Tell the story of what happened. You see, as soon as the early church began to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus, to preach on it, to theologize about it, to teach about it, to explain it, to comprehend it, to unpack it, and to live with it, as soon as they did that, they began to say, Jesus has been raised, and because he has been raised, we also will be raised from death. And this is the important point. That point is never made in the Gospels. Not a single Gospel account of the resurrection of Jesus says anything about our life after death. Not a single one of them. Because they didn't get it when they saw it. Because that's only what comes up after they've thought about it. After they've reflected on it. But in the moment, they were befuddled. So what you're reading in Luke 24, these are three pieces of evidence that this is eyewitness testimony. So three pieces of evidence, evidence, not proof. When Aaron Cook is in the court defending somebody, dealing with evidence, evidence points, you still have to think about it. You still have to ask the question, okay, what does this evidence point to? What is the most reasonable explanation of this evidence? Evidence isn't proof. But it is evidence. And what it tells us is that Jesus' resurrection is at the very least historically highly probable. That's what it tells us. That there's a high degree of probability that he did rise from the dead. And that's not all of it. It's just a sampling. Look, if you're interested in this sort of thing, this is the most sophisticated book I know that's analyzing the historical data. Can we really take it seriously, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? So if you're interested, this is understandable. It's thick. Look, just because it's big doesn't mean that you can't, right? It's a a remarkable feat of historical scholarship. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. And if you really are confused, if you really are struggling, or you really do have niggling kind of little doubts back there in the back of your mind, I highly encourage you to read this. Now, here's the catch. Evidence is not enough to force somebody to believe something, especially something as difficult to believe as the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. Left brain rationality alone cannot take you the next step. You cannot argue right up to the central truth of Christian faith by pure human reasoning that's built upon observation of the world. And yet, you do this stuff all the time. You are always making decisions based on evidence. This isn't, ai am not, Christians don't ask people to do something unique with the resurrection. We do this all of the time. What do we do? We take these minds that God has given us and we think carefully and deeply and rationally about the historical evidence supporting the resurrection of Jesus. After all, the idea that somebody has risen from the dead is shocking and it is so earth shattering, so impossible that we should pause before leaping into belief. And a person can always say, well, okay, I can't think of a better explanation for the evidence, but I'm sure there is one. Because I will hold to my presupposition that dead people just don't rise. I mean, you can do that. You can always say, well, look, that's the best explanation anybody can think of. But I know there must be a better one out there because I'm fundamentally committed to the view that that will not, could not, is impossible. Therefore, it didn't happen. Cautious agnosticism is always an option. In fact, that's the story of the disciples. The women, Peter, all of them, surprised, astonished, confused, skeptical. Right there in the pages of the Gospels, we're told that's how people responded to this. Like Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, God rescuing and healing and saving this world by taking on flesh, by becoming one of us, by dying on a cross and rising from the dead, it was implausible ...to the Jews and unsophisticated fairy tale talk to the Greeks. We're just like the Greeks. We're exactly like them. We are exactly the ones that Paul was talking about when he said to the Corinthians... ...a Christ crucified is is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Isn't that what it sounds like when you really think about this... ...or you try to tell somebody who doesn't believe it? Don't they look at you like you believe in the fairy fairy tales? Almost gave something away that... Maybe all parents in the room don't want me giving away, right? Don't they look at you and say, look, believing in that is just like believing in the Easter bunny. Except this isn't a fairy tale. It's true. Christ rose from the dead. Can you believe it? In the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun to fix the world. So that it will be filled with beauty and goodness and truth and justice. And one day when Jesus returns. This resurrection that Jesus himself experienced. It will happen to all of creation. To every square inch. Every institution. Every relationship. every But Jesus is the prototype of what God is going to do to this whole world. I said it last week. I'll say it again. In the beautiful imagery of the great 19th century Irish poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, everything that's pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and wise will. And here's his great image. It will shine out like shook foil. That's the first and most important point of Easter. Jesus is risen. So God's new world has begun. It really has. And as Christians, we are the ones who behave as if it has. In some really, really important ways, we know and we live and we behave as if we are living in new creation. Why do we forgive each other? Because in the new creation, forgiveness will be the order of the day. Why why do we love each other sacrificially? Because sacrificial love will be the order of the day. Why do we have self-discipline for our bodies and our minds and our imaginations? Because in the new creation, that will be the way it is. Why do we share our stuff? Because in the new creation, there will be none who lack. You see, that's what we are. We are the community of those who are living in new creation now in this tired, deserted world. We are Easter people, we are resurrection people among the graveyards. Of modernity and post modernity. We are Christians. We are the church. We have been formed within the new world, which began at Easter. We live now in God's new creation with bodies that will be redeemed. And yes, at the moment, our bodies are prone to suffering, to decay, and one day we will die. But because the project of renewal will be finished, Because the project of renewal that God began by raising Jesus from the dead, because it hasn't been finalized, we live in this strange overlapping moment where there are moments of new creation in our life and moments of death in our life. But the full and final resurrection and redemption and renewal of the whole creation and our bodies with it, it will happen through a second, fresh, creative, act of God's grace and mercy and power when Jesus reappears. And then God will do for the whole creation what he did with a bang for Jesus on that explosive Easter morning 2,000 years ago. Let's pray.